Listening Dog Media. Just as I start, I'm going to say, Matt, that I'm a friend of Ross Allen's and um, when I lived in London, I don't anymore, but um, when I was in the latter days of GLR, Ross promised me that I'd, he would introduce me to you and he never did and I've never forgiven <laughs> him. And it was something, I mean, I wanted that more than anything. He's just a very busy guy. Well, anyway. He can't have been that busy. We had five years. <laughs> How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. No one could teach you DJing, but you can't really do what other people can do because you can't hear what they can hear. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. You're not really a DJ until you've done gigs that you don't want to do. You can't wait until you feel ready. you just got to get out there. You're there to catch the mood. How to DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. That was a sort of energy source of like, right, we'll show them, we'll show them like what real music is about. Recorded during COP26, this episode is supported by the Eden Project's Festival of Discovery and with a leading force from DJs for climate action. We're mashing up the world and a musician has got to have some kind of comment on that. And DJs for Climate Action uses the power of music to amplify your role in protecting our planet's future. To have a point and a theme in what you do is stronger than just making stuff which is funky but undefinable in its meaning. All these things do link together in our lives and ideally they must be sold. DJs for Climate Action and Greenpeace have created a compilation called The Climate Sample Pack. Over the course of the next 30 minutes you'll hear examples of the music on the album and one of the album's curators Matt Black from Cold Cut is with me now. Hi Matt. Hey there Chris. Matt, what is The Climate Sample Pack? Well, that came out of an idea to give people a chance to make their own track using some sounds drawn from uh, various rainforest projects and then combined with some sounds of ours. And so we put this together as a pack for this app that we've made, which is called Jam. And that enables people to just have fun mixing electronic sounds together. And so we thought that this was a good way to get some promotion for climate change and environment causes and give people some fun at the same time. How were the samples collected? Some of the organisers of the project were working with different researchers who actually were in the rainforest, the different jungle areas, areas where there's interesting flora and fauna. And so they collected the, the natural samples, the environmental samples, and they presented those to us and we sort of did a a selection of those and then we combined them with some loops and samples of our own even though you know in the jungle there isn't actually that much jungle or drum and bass but we thought that would be a good tempo to do it at. So as one of the album's curators what submissions were you actually looking for? As a sort of magpie of sound if you like and that's what folk up do really we're always looking for something that is a bit unusual. People talk about earworms in terms of books and I think that also applies to choice of sounds as well. So we're looking for something that piques your interest, attracts the ear, and then you want to hear more of it. Also things that you can then use in a musical way. You know, you can take any sound, if it's got a pitch, then you can play that pitch up and down, assign it to a keyboard and play a tune on it. Those sounds which are good for doing that. When you were starting Cold Cut, do you know what you were searching for? Looking for the perfect beat was a, a hip-hop phrase at the time, and I quite liked that. Uh, some kind of musical key. But other than that, we were really just having fun messing around with sound. John Peel gave us 
the idea that it was cool to be into a lot of different sorts of music. And then hip hop with mixing tracks together and originators like Grandmaster Flash, DJs like that from the hip hop world gave us a set of techniques to literally mix different types of music together and make it into a kind of audio collage. So we were just really excited and high on the possibilities of doing that. And that's really what whole came out of. Did you ever want to be a hip hop act yourself? Well, I think hip hop is a broad church. And actually, if you look at the Ninja Tune label, which John and I started 30, more than 30 years ago now, if you ask the artists on the label what their common root is, I think a lot of them would say hip hop, particularly the older school artists, perhaps like Wagon Christ and DJ Food and The Herbalizer and Funky Porcini and Amon Tobin as well, that love of hip-hop was always there. I think if you ask more modern acts on the label like Bicep, they would probably also say that hip-hop's a big part of their inspiration. I would say that Polkot's uh, early tracks like Sake Is What Time Is It and Beats and Pieces were hip-hop tracks, they just weren't rap tracks. Aside from hip-hop at the time when you were starting out, what was the musical landscape like then in the, what would it have been, late 80s? Well, Ninja Tune and Colcret kind of London-based phenomenons, really. So I was born in London and, and I love it. And with respect to everywhere else in the country, London is an incredible centre for music and cultural mashup. And so that was the kind of food that we were feeding off, really. In the mid-80s, there was this great era of the warehouse parties in London. Basically, the youth were not able to get in and party in the sort of typical West End clubs, which were pretty boring expensive places and they're quite racist as well though a lot of the door policies so we started doing our own warehouse parties sometimes they're quite illegal just take over a space for a night and do a jam there by the time the police or the owners turned up the party was done so those attracted a wide variety of london youth and we were interested in music in dancing in partying in, in getting off with each other it was a kind of scene of different races and cultures coming together with a fuel by a love of music. And really that is the kind of, I would say, the grounds, the soil that the London scene grew out of. So people talked a lot about rare group and DJs like Norman Jay and Jonathan, actually my partner, Jonathan Moore was one of the better known DJs on that scene as well. It was called Rare Groove, those hard to get funk records. When you got all your James Brown records, where'd you go from there? And then there was the idea of the breakbeat. Hip-hop was all about breakbeats. And so a lot of the search for those rare tracks was like, which are the tracks, the obscure tracks that no one else has got that's got a really killer drum break in. You could also trace uh, Soul to Soul's genesis in that time. But Jonathan used to do some crazy parties under the name Meltdown and Flim Flum. Those were his two nights that he used to do. He used to play really wide variety of music. It was a lot about mixing all these different styles. A lot of it was black music. I think it's good to use that term and acknowledge where a lot of this music has come from. African music, reggae, funk, soul. And then we also mixed in rock and new wave, like a certain ratio. Of course, those records had like strong dance rhythms as well. But yeah, those warehouse parties were about mixing a lot of different sorts of music together and a mixture of people together. It was a really exciting time. And the label followed then, I assume, at Ninja Tune. Was that to facilitate your releases as Cold Cut? Yeah. I mean, what happened with Cold Cut was Cold Cut came out of that London warehouse scene that I've just been describing. We wanted to put that party on plastic. 
Jay Strongman, who was one of the leading DJs in London at the time, before DJing became such a huge thing, he was a, a figure. And he said that Say Kids, What Time Is It, our first track, was the first track to give London club culture an identity. So then we built on that. We started putting out other records. And then we got picked up by this label called Big Life and music business manager, Jazz Summers, who'd also been manager of Wham and so on. And he got us working with Yaz. And then we started having some pockets. But by the time say 1990, we got into a bit of a contractual swamp and they were saying, look, you've got to make another record like Doctor in the House. John and I basically didn't want to do that. So we started Ninja Tune to get our freedom back again. We'd started off very much in that late 70s DIY thing, you know, the Buzzcock, Spiral Scratch, Robert Rental and the Normal. But there was this flood of independently released seven inches. On New Sound, Adrian Sherwood was also a key sort of beacon at that point. And it was like, well, we can do it ourselves. So we had to return to that independent route after getting somewhat bruised. Ninja Tune was our escape vehicle out of that. You straddled, I guess, uh, particularly back then, the underground stuff that you were putting out with um, big hit productions like Yes, The Only Way Is Up. Yes. And I love that. But what was the ethos that yourself and Jonathan had at the time? Were you wanting to do both or were you all out to make big hits? It was a strange journey, that one, because I think, you know, as a, a young man, I was very much into sort of the underground and the alternative and but the mainstream and we're the alternative, we're the hipsters, none of this pop rubbish. And that was a sort of energy source. It's like, right, we'll show them, we'll show them like what real music is about. But then when you find yourself on top of the pops, you know, I used to watch Top of the Pops when I was a kid. And it's like, woohoo, we're on top of the Pops. Isn't it amazing? Look at that funny old sign, which we used to think was so good. It's just a big bit of expanded polystyrene, a bit well-worn at the edges. But then I guess we realised that the best definition of pop music is music that's popular. And that can be anything. And there have been some pretty weird records in time, which have managed to cross over, you know, Oh, Superman, Laurie Anderson. That was a number one record. And I think that did have an effect. So perhaps... You know, understandably enough, once we were in the charts and making a bit of money, we decided, well, actually, this isn't so bad. Our very good friend, Patrick Forge, the jazz DJ, said that Volker have always rather uneasily straddled the underground and overground scene. And I, I think he was right. But then I also think uneasily or unsteadily, right? Life, what is life? It's a dynamic balance. You have to keep moving. You have to keep making up that balance. Otherwise, you're static and that's death. So... I think having a foot in each camp and sort of the shifting sides of each has turned out to be a good thing. Do you think this was an unlikely career path for an Oxford graduate? <laughs> quite possibly, quite possibly. You know, when I was younger, I was really passionate about science and I could very easily have ended up working for a, a big chemicals company or working for GCHQ. I'm glad that I didn't. And I think music saved me from that, really. Falling in at Oxford with a bunch of mates living together, really, really getting into and enjoying music. That was a huge thing for me. In a way, I've always been trying to get back to that state. We bonded totally over black music. They're still my best mates. And I was the one that sort of took what we were into, which was making mixtapes and trying to learn to scratch and even learn to body pop and made it into a career. Yeah, it is quite unlikely, but here we are. What did you study? I studied biochemistry. And then that sort of led into, I was always interested in computers. I read a lot of sci-fi in particular, a book I remember that blew my mind was called The Shockwave Writer. It came out in 1975. Blessings to whoever was the librarian who put that on the little mobile library that served my village. And that was about a 
computer hacker about a network future. Totally blew my mind, as did The Selfish Gene. So out of those two books, I taught myself to computer program. And that really was what gave me a way into using technology for music making. And uh, became a kind of, would, would this be right, a music hacker? I am a kind of music hacker. I say that to sort of admit that I'm not really a musician. I do also believe that anyone who bangs on a mug is a musician as well, but I don't have any musical chops, don't understand scales or chords really. And I'm pretty, yeah, ignorant about music theory, but I've managed to take technology and sort of twist it so that I could play with music. And I think that's what a hacker does is misuse things to get to a result that they want to get to by an unusual route. Well put. Uh, were you an environmentally conscious young person, Matt? No, I can say pretty much categorically that I was not environmentally aware as a young person or as a young man. I was thinking about this the other day with those women at Green and Common. Me and my mates, we just didn't get it. We had a suspicion of Thatcher, but we also, I think, wanted to sort of make it big and that kind of me culture of the 80s did have an effect on us. And really it was some... Um, quite a slow awakening for me. I remember my sister knew some of the women who formed the plowshares movement. They broke into a British aerospace factory and disabled this Hawk jet aircraft that was going to be sold to Indonesia for killing people. And the penny sort of dropped. I was like, right, this is actually a heroic thing these women are doing for something that they really believe in. And, and when I found out that the UK was such a big seller of arms, number two armament seller on the planet, pieces started to drop into position. I began to sort of look at where I was in society, what society is doing, what the UK is like, what capitalism is about, what's happening to the environment, start to notice the costs a bit more. You know, ignorance is bliss, they say, but when you sort of wake up a little bit, you can't have that bliss anymore. You have to start looking at the sometimes painful reality. You know, do I have a responsibility to try and contribute to changing things for the good? And how did that new consciousness back then manifest itself in what you were doing in music, would you say, if at all? Well, I think our first records were pretty much about, you know, a funky beat, some cool samples, some tongue-in-cheek stuff. But as we went on, we started to want more of a message in the music. Steinsky, who very much inspired us with his lessons one, two, and three, came out with that track, The Motorcade Sped On. And that was a track that I played to my parents to try and explain what a DJ was and what I did, because it was a bit more serious. So then we started trying to have some legible messages in our music. And when I thought about it, it's like, actually, I don't want abstract stuff. I want stuff to have a point, because to have a point and a theme in what you do is stronger than just making stuff which is funky, but undefinable in its meaning. And was there a, a particular moment, would you say, a tipping point perhaps, when you became concerned about climate change specifically? So tracks like The Only Way Is Up and People Hold On did have a message of positivity. But when we, time we got to stop this crazy thing, the penny had dropped a bit, you know, we're mashing up the world and a musician has got to have some kind of comment on that. And then by the time we came to make Timber in the sort of late, 90s. I met some interesting sort of activist types. I went to the Claremont Road protests. I had a friend called Bongo, who was an ambient activist and traveler type. She opened my eyes to stuff. In terms of, you know, black politics and racism, we met this crew from Tottenham called Base Incorporated and a guy called himself Black Radical Felix. I really learned a lot from him about black experience and what was going on as well. I mentioned them because all these things fit together. They are all part of a bigger picture. 
you know, the world is pretty messed up in a lot of different ways and it needs to be recognized and really changed on all fronts. All these things do link together in our lives and they must be linked together. And ideally they must be sold together as well. If we're to move on and survive as a race. Unity is a word that's coming to mind from all that you're saying. Yeah, it is about unity. And I think that's quite recognized now that, you know, it's not just about climate change, there's climate justice as well. Who are the people who are actually paying the costs for our lifestyle here? Is that fair? As I say, we need to grip all these nettles <laughs> firmly and uh, rip them out, I suppose. Matt, tell me, what is, if it's not patently obvious, what is the objective of DJs for Climate Action? I think the objective of DJs for Climate Action is to be part of the push to take positive climate action, which for me is the number one challenge for humanity. Probably the number one challenge has ever been for humanity. And as a musician, and DJs are kind of musicians because we work with music, music is a force and that's been shown many times in the past. It can have a political clout. DJs for Climate Action is attempting to use whatever influence DJs have to power through positive climate change action using the power of music. Matt, time now for the first of your five picks from 45 in this record box. All the questions are on 45, Steve's, and if you say when, I'll dip into the box now. Yeah, go ahead. Your first question from the box, Matt, is this. What's the greatest sight you've ever seen from a DJ booth? Can it be from a from a live performer? Sure. I think I'd say my greatest sight from the stage is in Casablanca in Morocco. We were playing in a sort of football stadium to 30,000 people. And we put together an audiovisual piece that used a lot of local material. It used a film which had been shot in the town. And it also used bits of uh, footage and logos from the, the two football teams in the town and various other bits and pieces that people recognised. And they weren't quite sure about our set, but when we played that one, it was called Welcome to Casa, Bienvenue a Casa. It was a, just an immense reaction, like all the energy, which had sort of been latent, just exploded and people were really uh, losing it. So that was an incredible sight. Do you remember how you felt at that moment? Can you describe that feeling? It was definitely a, a big rush of euphoria. And it'd been a lot of work to make that piece. So when you work hard on something and then you see that your efforts do work and that people really enjoy it. It's a great feeling. As well, you know, we were just some guys from the UK kind of swanning into Morocco and with the support of the British Council. And uh, it was about connecting with the local people there who otherwise we didn't really have much obvious connection with. But by using music and shared culture, we were able to get a resonance and a strong connection. And I think that's what it's all about. Brilliant. Back into the box for your second question. You say when, okay, Matt? Go ahead. When? Okay, your second question. Name one of the weirdest places you've ever DJed. I'm sure there've been a few, so just one of them will be fine. I think out of the box, I'd probably pick DJing at Burning Man Festival in the States. 50,000 people and probably the best party I've ever been to, certainly off the book in terms of the sights and sounds and, and people there. And um, I played at Fractal Nation as the sun was coming up. And to see all the freaks kind of streaming in there and in the light of day, I'd been up all night and it was the revelation to be there in the middle of the desert, the sun coming up, surrounded by a pretty crazy stage spectacle. They do build some fantastic sets there. 
it's been a long journey to get there from my school disco days to Burning Man. So I guess if I look at that part, it did feel quite odd and satisfying to be there. Did you, uh, do you um, party hard? I'm not really a major party freak raver type of person. I'm actually, sorry to disappoint people, but <laughs> I'm sort of just a, a geek who got lucky really. But I do like to get high and use that energy to do my thing and be creative. And um, I'm not so much a party animal, more of a party scientist, perhaps. <laughs> How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I'm actually more exciting on my iPad than I ever was on my turntable. I'm still learning. And that's about learning how to read people and get on with them. Each decision that we make every day is powerful and we should recognise that power. All right, back into the box for the third question. Okay, you just say when. Yeah. Does great tech make a DJ better? Great tech and DJs. You know, you ask any question about human living, the answer is always yes and no. There's always a polarity there. So I'm a DJ who's used technology to make myself better and to make myself into a musician as well. Without it, I'd be nowhere. However, I admire it when I see a DJ perform on low-tech stuff, you know, whether that might be two turntables and a mixer or indeed two old-school Eastern European tape records and a mixer. And I really admire that getting dirty, hands right on the old analog gear, working it. It is a bit too easy now to just put your memory stick into your CDJ and hit sync and it will pretty much mix everything together for you. All you've got to do is throw your hands up in the air by looking at your fee transfer. How comfortable are you if you are doing a, a conventional DJ set? How comfortable are you being on show? Well, it's two different questions. In terms of a conventional DJ set, you'd be talking about playing vinyl, right? Sure. I gave my vinyl collection away to Raj Panu, uh, Cold Cut Scratch DJ, and um, I don't miss it. I love vinyl and I love that feeling of a hand on the turntable, but I also love my app, my touchscreen interfaces and my musical inventions. Those are what I use nowadays. So I'm actually more exciting on my iPad than I ever was on my turntable. And kept busy though um, with that tech, I guess. Yeah, totally kept busy because wouldn't it be great if you could do this? And then it's like, well, that doesn't exist. So we could maybe build it or we could modify this item. And I, actually now with Jam, I've got the instrument I wanted. I'm happy with it. I can still take it further, but I can feel I can express myself musically really well on that. Were you comfortable playing vinyl and with all eyes on you? No, not always comfortable. And I've sometimes said it's like sort of spinning plates amongst the pit of hungry lions. And, you know, I've cleared the floor many times because I didn't understand what people wanted or I was being booked for the wrong crowd or I just was not able to sort of meet an audience halfway to find that spot between what they all want to hear and what I might want to play. However, I think I've got better at it. I have been DJing since 1976. That's quite a long time, but I'm still not very good at it. I'm still learning. And that's about learning how to read people and get on with them. Very modest of you. And also, I think probably a good lesson, food for thought for any young DJs that you've been doing it that long and uh, still don't consider yourself very good at it. I would say as well, that, you know, all DJs have cleared the floor sometimes. If you don't clear the floor ever in your career, you're probably just playing bubble gum and need to try harder. The mainstream caters overwhelmingly for a quite narrow strata of music. It's monoculture and there is room for an alternative to that. In a way, that's what Ninja Tune stood for, being an alternative. But 
on the other hand, we all like to see a dance floor full of happy people having a good time. So like everything, it's a dynamic balance. Can I ask a, a really ridiculous question that you may have a very simple answer to, and maybe don't even want to bother to answer, but I've always been curious as to Ninja Tune being singular as opposed to it being a label with acts signed to it and therefore Ninja Tunes. Uh, well, you know, we can't even decide how to spell it. Is it one <laughs> word or two? I think John and I would say, like, sometimes you seize on a particular tune, right? Wow, that's a tune. Yeah. So that's a ninja tune. Or as John said about Rare Groove, it's not necessarily about the rarity of that record. John says it's that rare record that's got the groove. So a ninja tune is that rare tune that's got the ninja. Brilliant answer. And I've always wondered, back into the box now, Matt, for question four. Go ahead. Has a DJ ever saved your life? Yeah, Mixmaster Morris saved my life from uh, going down a certain road where I thought I was sort of over it and I didn't really know where to go. And I went to a, a squat party, which was organised by Telepathic Fish. Uh, Strictly Kev, DJ Food, was one of the art students who put that together. And Morris was there. And I don't know if I can say this on there, but I took acid for the first time for 10 years. And it's like, oh yeah, now I think, I remember now what it's about. I almost forgot to have this rebirth of my mind. I got locked in a rut and Morris's soundtrack, I don't think it ever really dropped. And it's like, wow, when you're DJing, you have a real responsibility to provide the people who are listening to you with nourishment. You've got so much power there. People are sensitive. Their ears are open. And um, I woke up that night. And in that sense, my life was saved by Mixmaster Morris. Pretty. I just want to say one other thing about that. I can say that music has saved my life. And the music makers and the DJs who introduced me to that music have saved my life so many times. Many times being nearly ready to give up living. And it's been music that's uh, brought me back. So you mean way beyond being saved from doing a conventional job, that things have been very dark? Yeah, I've had, you know, all my adult life, I've had struggles with my mental and emotional stability. And if it wasn't for my love of music, I don't think I would have made it through them. That's very open and honest of you, Matt. Um, going back into the box now for a final time, say when. Yes. <laughs> this is an easy one for you. Well, I, I would think an easy one because you'll have been asked it a thousand times. What's your favourite sample? These questions are trying to focus down a universe of experience and memory into a single brain. If I have to pick one, I think uh, using Jungle Book's King of the Swingers over James Brown's Funky Drummer, the combination which started Cult Cup and uh, still brings a smile to my face. Whenever I play it, people light up. So let's hear it for Walt Disney. Matt. Thanks so much. In terms of DJs for climate action, do you have a call to action for DJs? Yeah, my call to action is for DJs and all of us, which is every decision that we make is powerful. And we consider each decision in the light of the bigger picture of its impact on the planet and the rest of humanity, whether that's who you bank with, whether you fly, whether you can be bothered to do your recycling whether you get out on the street for Extinction Rebellion, whether you go and DJ for free at an event to help boost the activism, whether you make a, a mixtape that's themed on something environmentally relevant, 
Each decision that we make every day is powerful and we should recognize that power and use it for what we know is right. And I've got one very last question for you. And I normally ask this question with an apocalyptic scenario in mind, but following all that we've talked about, let me ask it with a positive twist. So a global dance floor is gathered. You get to play three inspiring pieces of music to the world. Or what would they be? Perhaps it should be, what would they be today? Because you might pick three completely different ones tomorrow or the next day or whenever. I think I'd be allowed to pick one of our own ones. So play the only way is up. Because I believe that we have to keep focused on the chance that we can make it. Uh, I like Leon Thomas, Precious Energy, which is a wonderful, soulful, jazzy hymn to power of solar energy. There's no energy shortage. There's only energy consciousness shortage. We receive 15,000 times more energy than we use every day, sun. So actually there's plenty of energy there. And that song speaks to that. And then finally, I choose Accra by Ryuchi Sakamoto. We recently curated an ambient music compilation called App Zero as a benefit for mental health, uh, both for relaxing, uplifting and healing music to listen to and also all our any returns we're getting are going to mental health charities like Black Minds Matter and, uh, and CAR. And uh, we wrote to various artists and Mr. Sakamoto very generously gave us a, a new recording of this wonderful piano track. He'd been doing a um, performance called Piano for the Isolated. So this track from Ridge Sakamoto, Aqua, is a, a wonderful, relaxing piece of music. And it's the first track on the, the album. And whenever I put it on, I feel that sense of wonder and beauty reawakened in me, that love of music comes up. And also I appreciate the gift of music from that artist. And uh, I want to pass that gift on to other people. And that feels like a fitting point. I wish to say thank you very, very much, Matt Black. That was How to DJ with Matt Black from Cold Cut and Ninja Tune and DJs for Climate Action in a special edition of this podcast in association with the Eden Projects Festival of Discovery. Thank you, Matt. Thanks very much, Chris. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. 